Welcome to Brave, Bold, Brilliant. Your host, Jeanette Linfoot, talks to incredible people about their experiences and unleashing their full potential. From the boardroom tables of big international business to the dining room tables of entrepreneurial startups, embracing opportunities, overcoming challenges, taking risks, while staying true to yourself is where the magic happens. Hi, it's Jeanette here. If you're enjoying Brave, Bold, Brilliant, I'd love it if you'd subscribe, share with your friends and leave a five-star review. Let's do it. Here's the show. So welcome to the podcast, Brave, Bold, Brilliant. I am your host, Jeanette Linford. I'm here today with Mike Backup, who is a partner in an architectural practice here in Swansea. But of course, it's not just Swansea where you do a lot of your work. It's all over the place, isn't it, Mike? Yes, it is. Yes, we travel um, all over the country. Um, but probably the majority of our work is London-based uh, because that is, I don't know, there's... Although people in London are complaining that it's slowing down, um, compared to the rest of the country, it's still the, the property market is still incredibly buoyant up there. Mm, yeah, so we're going to get into a discussion around property, architectural side of things, how you started out in life and, and kind of where you are now and everything in between, really. So I'm mm. sure we'll, we'll probably get into a, a bit of a discussion around maybe the difference between England and Wales as well when, when doing some projects too, because um, obviously you, you know everything about everything, don't you, in this world, Mike? <laughs> So, right, Mike, let's start with your journey then, because we all, I always like to kick off the podcast so we get to know a little bit about you, where life started for you, and kind of how you ended up in this game, if that's all right. Oh, right. Well, <laughs> I, 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 miss, I, I kind of view myself as sort of having fairly modest um, beginnings. Um, I had a typical upbringing, uh, one which I, I'm, I do cherish. It's, you know, it's a middle-class upbringing. I had my mum and dad two siblings, and I, I am aware that, you know, not everybody has that. Mm. So not everyone comes from that same sort of solid but unspectacular background. Um, so I considered myself privileged to have that, um, but I just went through in the normal education system, comprehensive school, and that's the environment in which I grew up in. But I always, in school, I always absolutely loved design. I, uh, I was one of the few people in my school to actually do A-level woodwork. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> um, when I asked the teacher, can I, because generally those sorts of subjects, woodwork and metalwork, uh, they tended to be sort of more uh, the, uh, the domain of, shall we say, the less academic student, mm. um, which of course is a complete nonsense, but um, I, I enjoyed it. So when I asked my teacher, woodwork teacher, could I do A-level woodwork, he, he looked at me and he said, well, I suppose you could, but no one's ever done it before. <laughs> so so I, I, I loved woodwork, working with wood. I loved what we used to call in those days technical drawing, so we didn't have computers. Mm. So you'd set squares and drawing boards, T-squares, and Putting the two together, I'd always really, really wanted to be a furniture designer. Wow. Because I love, I loved furniture. I still do. I have a passion for furniture. Um, but contemporary furniture, whenever I go to exhibitions, the first section I always head for is furniture. Um, and in, back in the day, you had people like, uh, you had Habitat. Mm. Uh, you know, long before we had IKEA. So, you know, I, I loved looking at the design and things like that. But unfortunately, there wasn't really any avenues into furniture design. There were no college courses, no university courses, no apprenticeships in design. So that was an opportunity which I couldn't really get into. Mm. So I remember I, I saw a job advertised for a kitchen designer. And so I thought, oh, I'll do that then. So I, I, I took this job as a kitchen designer, um, but it, it, it wasn't as um, fulfilling as I was hoping. And it just so happens at the time, my girlfriend at the time, her father had an architectural practice. And I must have made a, a su sufficiently suitable impression because he said that they could be looking to take someone on to train as um, an architectural assistant and I jumped at that opportunity 
And that's how I went into architecture. Wow, gosh, okay. Yeah. So, but you, you always, even at a young age, and you had an eye for design and, and kind of quite creative by the sounds of it in, in when you were at school and stuff. Yeah, I suppose, you know, architecture is a, bl um, a blend of the, the two things. Mm. You need to have the design flair, yep. but then you need to have the technical side. And you, you've got to, so you need the arts and you need the sciences. Yeah. And you've got to blend those two together to produce buildings yeah and so probably there was a little bit little bit of both if you're entirely artistic or you're entirely scientific probably architecture isn't the right route for you mm. you've got to have a little bit of got to have a little bit of both yeah, and you and, and you've done all manner of projects, haven't you? From sort of smaller smaller design projects, architectural projects, to, to sort of big developments as well. So, do you want to just talk about the range of the th interesting things you've been involved in over the years? Because I'm sure there's loads. Well, yeah, it, it's funny because we, we tend to, you know, nowadays we're involved in quite large projects in London. You know, some of them, you know, two, three hundred apartments, um, new builds, um, and that's you know that's fun but actually I, probably the most satisfaction comes from doing quite a, a very small but very sort of designed project so whether that's an ex, you know a nice extension to a house mm. or a refurbishment of an interesting building um, it's I suppose different architects have got different passions about things but I probably personally mm. I probably get more satisfaction from doing a project like that than I do from from the very large mm, projects which we're working on but I guess what you've what that what you have by doing both is you've got the discipline of scale and the commerciality of, of those big developments but mm. applying it to you know to those those smaller projects as well that gives you more of a not just the architectural eye but the commercial perspective as well I, I would expect yeah and generally the larger the project the more commercial it is, and we can all think, you know, everybody can think of buildings which, large buildings, you think, well, they're horrible, you know, how on earth did someone design that? And invariably, someone didn't have business designed it. It's, it's about getting the maximum lettable floor area for the least amount of cost. And very often, as a designer, you're, you're, that's your brief to deliver, to, to deliver that to the client. Mm. And so an awful lot of the, the poorer buildings we see around are more to do with business and finance than perhaps they are to do with architecture. Yeah, and that's a perspective that probably a lot of people wouldn't think about. They'd immediately say, good God, who designed that eyesore? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I've done a few of them. <laughs> well, you see, you're very honest, and this is yeah. what this is all about, you know, you having a very honest and open conversation. Yeah. And do you ever find, Mike, because I, I, I'm interested in this, where you might have a very specific perspective as to how you think a building should look or, or a project should look that then contradicts the client's view how do you deal with that reconciliation I'm sure that must happen over the years oh it, it, <laughs> it, it does happen I suppose and I hope this doesn't sound arrogant but sometimes you need to try and educate your client that they can actually achieve more and better than what they're currently thinking of this tends to happen probably most with individual one-off houses, mm. um, particularly with the advent of the internet now. You know, we get a lot of clients who come in and you know, they've seen things, oh, I like this, I like that. And that's great, that's a great start because you know, our job is to give the clients what they want. But part of our job is to show the client they can actually achieve more than they perhaps were thinking of. And sometimes you've just got to try and encourage your client just to push the boundaries just just a little bit mm. um, but at the end of the day you have to take your instructions from your client and you know, there's no point in delivering a building for them which they don't like they have to they have to like it and they've got to feel comfortable in it and it has to you know, do what they want it to do but I, I think perhaps you know, sometimes clients do come in and they've seen something and I look and I think, oh man, that just isn't the right building for that site. So you've got to try and show them that, well, listen, you know, you've got this site and look, your sun is coming from here, views there, the wind direction, etc. So you need to perhaps sometimes just encourage your client to see things in a slightly different way. Yeah. But at the end of the day, your client has the right to have 
what they want to have. Of course, of course, yeah. So yeah. a lot of influencing, really, influencing, educating, you know, showing the art of the possible, mm. I guess, is what you, what you also do, isn't it, as part of your role? It is, yeah. And it's really important to, you know, if anybody is thinking of development, is to find an architect you can work with. It's uh, finding a designer. It doesn't matter what, whether it's an architect, an interior designer, or, or whatever it is, if it's a design uh, issue, you need to find somebody you think, yeah, I can, I can work with this person. Mm, mm. And uh, that's, that's always, I think, quite important. Yeah, I mean, I think it's essential. You know, I mean, obviously we've met relatively recently because Chris and I have moved down to wonderful Mumbles to, right. uh, to expand our property business. And you have kindly been helping us with some projects that we're looking at. And, and you're absolutely right. You know, we found each other because of a recommendation from a, a joint friend, um, mm. Martin Morgan, who highly recommended you. And, uh, and then we met kind of gelled and, and actually your advice and, and trusting the professionals I think is really important. If you're a property investor, property developer, you know, yes, have your own opinion on things, but also trust the professionals because that's what, that's what you're, paying, you're paying for as well, right? Well, yeah, right. You know, it, you, know it's, it's, you don't go to a doctor and ignore the advice he gives you. No, exactly. And so it, sometimes it is, um, it is important to, to realise that you're paying for advice. Mm. Uh, it's up to you whether you decide to accept that advice, but the wise course of action would be to say, yeah, okay, that's the way we'll run. Yeah, and and, and talk about um, a little bit, because obviously you're a property investor yourself, you've got a property portfolio, which maybe we'll talk about in a bit more detail, but you've also, you, you understand from the client's point of view, you know, maybe someone that's getting into property for the first time, or maybe they've done some simple buy-to-lets and they're scaling up to, to what, more mm. uh, bigger projects and bigger developments. What advice would you give to someone that's maybe slightly cautious, they don't quite know where to start when looking at, at the architectural side things um, as well as find someone you can work with what, what other things could people do when they're starting out on a project if they're not used to, to working with architects do you think Mike um, okay well the if you can uh, as the client if you can try and define what your objectives are what what do you want to get out of this mm. because if you go in to see an architect an architect can't magic up something which is in your head. So the more you can tell your architect what you want to achieve, the better chance you get of the architect being able to successfully deliver your aims and your goals. Uh, I think you you should have those objectives quite clear, even if, uh, and if you're just starting off, those objectives, those goals will change. They will, as you get more experienced, as you realise things perhaps aren't going to quite work out that way. Um, I've been in this game for a long time and I've done exactly the same. We've recently bought um, a little project abroad uh, just to, to do up uh, and to sell. Mm. Um, but we've been delayed about nine months on it because of where it is. We've got to get various permissions and consents, which we'd always assumed, but we didn't realise that um, it was going to take quite as long as it's going to take, mm -hmm. and there's nothing you can do about that. <laughs> I'd assume that sort of in this country, typically it would take, say, two to three months to get planning consent. Not in, the, not in Spain, it's nine months. Wow. And there's nothing you can do about that. Um, so you, you have to be flexible, and maybe you've got to build that into your initial assessment. You need to be able to to just roll with the punches. Yeah, okay, no, that, that is great advice. And it's almost starting with the end in mind, isn't it? And then working backwards. Yeah. Um, and, and I suppose also the other thing that I think that we think about is multiple exit options. So, you know, you'll have a plan for a building and, and what the prime strategy is gonna be. Um, but then there's always what I what I, we always do is we also say well okay what's the worst case yeah. you know if we had to flip it if we had to do it as a buy to let you know what do the numbers look like versus what maybe the, your 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 original aim is and I think that's important not to distract from the design and and the main strategy but to just be aware of those implications because presumably there are more costly aspects that you could bring into a project and mm -hmm. there are more cost-effective aspects you can bring into a project. And I suppose knowing where you want to end up influences the budget and everything, doesn't it, as well? Well, yeah, I mean, so it, it's, you know, you, 
It's fairly basic, isn't it? That you need to start off with a budget. Yeah. <laughs> and if you're going to borrow money, you know, the bank will want to know what your 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 cost planning is. And but the budget is a working tool. So you, you allocate sums of money against certain things and you know that if you've overspent on a certain aspect, well now you know that your overall budget, your end game is going to struggle a little bit so you may need to make savings elsewhere. So it, 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 it's essential in any business, not just develop, yeah. in any <laughs> business, you need to have you know, your, your cost analysis. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. There, and be prepared that, as I always say, you have to be flexible because that is going to change. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I mean, you deal with the planning department and <laughs> in mm. multiple jurisdictions. What are some of the pitfalls or things to kind of be aware of or bear in mind? I mean, you mentioned earlier around the length of time it can take to get planning permission as, as, as mm. one aspect. But I'm sure there's many others, you know, party wall. Maybe you can talk about some of the sort of the, the more... Uh, um, the more frequent things that come up when people are, you know, having to submit plans, etc., that they just to be aware of and educate themselves. Yeah, well, I suppose the first thing I'd say is do it properly. Don't try and cut corners. Don't try and circumvent planning mm. uh, or the various building regulations you need because it will come back at some point. Um, you know, typically, if I was going to say a project. Sometimes people try and circumvent planning or they don't build it quite in accordance with what they've got planning consent for. And they may get away with it for a while, but then they come to sell the house, they're in trouble. Mm. Because the vendor solicitor says, well, where's your planning consent? Well, that's not, and, and all of a sudden the sale falls through. And so things will go better for you generally in life if you do them the way you meant to do them. Mm. And we mentioned planning, it seems to be, you know, in people's mind, the great pariah. Well, no, planning isn't that difficult. And, you know, how I always say, if we didn't have development control, well, I dread to think where we would be, because everybody would just build whatever they fancy building. So we do need development control, and they, they you know, they do a good job. Mm. Um, and sometimes what happens is, if they don't get people don't get planning consent for what they want to do. The planning department is the worst people in the world. If they do get the consent, well, they're fine. (laughs) So, yeah, you've got to remember that, you know, planning officers, they've got a set of constraints and they may, their considerations may be different to your considerations. Mm. But it doesn't mean to say they're wrong. No, no, it's not. It's really good. Actually, you're right. See, see it from the other side. Hmm. Try and put yourself in the in in their shoes in terms of you know what they have to work within as well. And and is is it possible for people to get information on sort of what's you know what some of those parameters are, if you like? Because every planning council will be different, won't it? Presumably. Um, oh, it online now. Every local authority will have um, a local development plan. Hmm. And that will be supplemented by various design guides. It's all available online. So you will know in principle what, um, how a, what a planning department will be looking for mm. what, and what they will expect. And, uh, and that is for the, sort of the greater good of the community, really. Uh, that's, that, that is all available online. The, di- the difference is it's the interpretation, you know, the devil is in the detail. Um, because all, all design guides are the written word, and as we all know, you can interpret the, different, the written word different ways. <laughs> so experience on how these things uh, are interpreted can be, um, can be important. Yeah and, yeah, and obviously that's a key role that you play in terms of understanding all of that and then helping, the, helping your client navigate through what's the best option to go for um, that's most likely to get approval right, in yeah. the context of, of yeah. where you're developing. And sometimes we think perhaps clients may think that we're being a little obstructive, but we're not. We'd, um, we're just sort of advising them. We think, well, I don't think you're going to get support from planning mm. on that. Um, yeah, I'm just advising you. So we, can, we can go down that route, but um, I'm not confident that you'll get support on it. Yeah, I mean, I remember some of the conversations that we've had where you've given given us brilliant advice and said, well, you know, we could push it, but actually, no, this is more, this is the, this is in your expert advice, 
the most likely best outcome we can get if we go down this direction. In the timescales that time scale. you were hoping to achieve. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And, yeah. Um, and, yeah, and timescale is important because, as you say, you know, you, if you... If time is money when you've invested. Absolutely. Then, you know, and if, yeah. you're, if you're borrowing from, from a bank or financial institution, a, a bridging company or, or angel investors, you know, that money mm. is costing you every single day. Oh, it is, yes. Time is of the essence. Yeah. Um, can we talk about, about some technical stuff around... Um, party walls and, right. and the like yeah. um, and just sort of I, like I say some people listening to the podcast might be getting into properties for the first time other people maybe um, have, have never considered it but are thinking all oh, right okay yeah actually you know I, I want to do this sounds like it could be interesting for me or other people might be you know doing bigger more ad, uh, adventurous projects um, so things like party wall acts that sound absolutely terrifying <laughs> to your average Joe. Mm. Um, can you just talk us through that, the process, and, and kind of what it, how, how you navigate around it, what it's there to do, and, and so it's not so scary, it's just something that actually needs to be built into, into a project where that's relevant? Yeah, okay, well, you know, obviously a party wall surveyor could better answer your question, but I have a, you know, a general understanding of the principles. Yeah. And the Party Wall Act is a very, very useful act which has come in because it's there to help resolve disputes between neighbours. And invariably, neighbours do fall out with each other. And so if you want to, if you're working on, and it involves party walls, which is a wall between two buildings, but it also includes a boundary wall, which is a boundary between, so it could be a garden wall mm. between two buildings. If you're doing work within the vicinity, you have to basically advise your neighbour that you're going to be doing this work. Uh, you know, in most circumstances, that would have happened anyway by word of mouth, but this formalises the process. And, um, and it's as simple as that. And your neighbour can't stop you doing the work. You have a legal right to do it, providing you have served the correct notice mm. on them. So I always say that if you're doing work on an existing building, uh, assume that the Party Wall Act is going to apply and so you need to appoint um, a party wall surveyor who will just serve a notice. If the neighbour says, fine, yeah, more than happy, carry on, you just carry on. If the neighbour says, well, look, I, I am a little bit concerned um, about what you're going to do, and this could affect my property, well, then the party wall surveyor is there. He will make a record of the, uh, the state of the properties before you start work. And that's important because if there are then disputes, if there's claims that the work you've done has damaged the neighbouring property, well, there'll be a photographic and written record of what was there. Mm. And uh, you can see whether it is as a result of what you've done. So generally, the Party Wall Act favours, in my opinion, the person who's undertaking the work. Mm, yeah, and actually it's there for, for both protection on Protect, both sides. Protects both know? sides, yeah. yeah. So rather than seeing it as something negative, just embrace it and, and actually yeah. get, get, you know, do the right yeah, thing. Yeah, it's, it's not a big, you just appoint a party wall survey, it's not a big deal, other than it does cost you money. Yeah, Because yeah. you've got to pay for the surveyor. And, and obviously you've done lots of developments in conservation areas where, you know, on top of the normal planning uh, mm. regulations, and how, how, does, how, how does that add a, an added complexity for, for developers? Well, you get two things. You get conservation areas and then you get individual listings on buildings. Um, it's just um, an additional tier that you have to go through in the planning process and invariably you have to provide a little bit more uh, information at planning stage as to exactly what and how you're going to do it mm. and you need that approval before you, you start your work. And so, it, you know, uh, well, you and I have worked together in conservation areas, <laughs> and sometimes the, the interpretation from the local authority may be a little unnecessarily obsessive. Mm. So you just have to try and come to some sort of reasonable compromise. Yes, indeed, that. indeed. I'm smiling. <laughs> 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 yeah, yeah. baptism of fire. Anyway, all good, all good. So moving on. Yeah. And, and Mike, 
you know, you've got property yourself as well. You know, obviously, you, yeah. you know, you've got your, your home here, but you have got a portfolio of your own properties. So, you know, what would you say to anyone that's thinking about getting into property? Um, you know, good thing, bad thing? I mean, well, I think I know what the answer is. Yeah. <laughs> but for your point of view, you know, obviously, you've got your, your very successful uh, architectural practice here. But, you, you know, you have got the property portfolio as well. So you've got a few things going on, haven't you? Yeah, I suppose it's because of, of what I do. Um, I don't understand stocks and shares. Um, I, I don't understand other aspects of business, but I do understand buildings and property. And therefore I felt comfortable in investing in property. And so I have a, I have a belief, uh, an observation, that if you invest in property, you will make money. At it, providing you go don't go and do something absolutely stupid. Yeah. But but if you if you view it as a long term project, and by long term I say give it a ten year life cycle, it'd be very unusual for you not to sell the property for more than you paid for it, mm. because property values do go up. There'll always be a value in bricks and mortar. You can't. I don't have the same confidence saying stocks and shares. They could become worthless overnight but a building may go down in value temporarily but it's never going to be worthless mm. and when you know, if you do get a little bit of a slump in the property market give it time and it will go back up yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I 100% agree, actually. And, you know, and even if someone is in a job and, and they, they enjoy their career, actually to get into property, you know, either on the side or, or full time is, is, is definitely a good thing. And we, well, Chris and I are actually mentored by the founders of Progressive Property. And Mark Homer, he, one of his quotes, which I love is, don't wait to buy property, buy property and wait. And oh, I, I like think that, that yeah. summarises really it, yeah. well what you've just described there, actually. Yes. Yeah, and I suppose the other little bit of advice I would give, because it's what, what I and my wife Ingrid, because we're doing things together, um, I always slightly overestimate my costs and slightly deliberately underestimate, underestimate my returns. Mm. Because that does give you that little bit of wriggle room when things, uh, unexpected costs come along. Yeah, yeah. If, if, you're, if you're going in too sharp on your costs, and too optimistic on your returns, it doesn't take long for it to tip the wrong way. Yeah, no, that, that's right. Yeah. And, and also have a contingency. Have a contingency, yeah. Yeah, because, I mean, property is great, but it doesn't always, it, you know, there are things that go wrong. Yeah, if it can go wrong, it will go wrong. And so contingencies and emotionally, you've got to be flexible. You've got to accept the fact that things aren't going to quite work out according to your plan. Uh, they never do in construction. So you have to be flexible mm. and, and, as I said, roll with the punches a little yeah. bit. And you mentioned the lovely Ingrid there. Um, <laughs> and Ingrid is an interior designer who has also been supporting us with our, our property projects down here as well. So you make a great team, actually, I think, as a, as a couple. And even though you've got separate businesses, is there, is there some overlap with you working together or common clients as well? I guess we're one example of a common client, aren't we? Everyone asks me that. And the answer is... <laughs> Far fewer than you would imagine. Oh, really? Yeah, far, yeah, I think perhaps by the time most people have built what they want to build, they haven't got any money to finish it. <laughs> You've taken all the money, Mike. It's your but, fault. Um, it, it, it doesn't happen. You know, everyone thinks, oh, I'm an architect, my wife's an interior designer, we're constantly working together. together. Um, no, I'd probably suggest in the 20-odd years that I've been running this practice, it's probably only ever happened about a dozen times. Okay. Um, so, and they tend to be, yeah, no, it's, it doesn't happen as often as, as you think. Well, maybe that makes for happy marriage. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, there could be some truth in that. Because yeah, yeah. working with your partner's not always easy, trust me. Oh my God, Chris and I have had our moments, but we've, we've sort of, you know, you end up, we've ended up sort of finding a way where we actually respect and value each other's um, skills and um, we, we, you know, we, uh, we find a way to rub along. Whereas in the early days, God, there was a bit more friction, shall we say? Oh, yeah. right. 
tripping each other up a bit, but yeah, yeah. it takes time, doesn't it? But um, I mean, just coming come into sort of the market today, Mike, because obviously, you know, the market's pretty hot in mm, property, isn't it? Is, it? Yeah. And you must be seeing that on the architectural side. Um, how, how, do you, how, how, is, how are you seeing the market at the moment? And that could be in London or the other areas, you know, or in South Wales. And, and what do you what do you think is going to happen? I mean, if you had a crystal ball, obviously it would all be uber, uber billionaires, probably not just millionaires. Um, but yeah, what, what's happening in the market at the moment? What are you seeing? It is such a difficult one to predict that at the moment. Um, <laughs> yeah. To perhaps to illustrate it, uh, a few years ago we had one or two members of staff move on, and then within a month or two, COVID hit us. So we were anticipating, as everyone was, a downturn. We didn't bother. We thought, well, we won't replace those staff um, because there's going to be a downturn. The opposite has happened. You know, the construction industry is absolutely booming. Now, who, what analyst could have predicted that? You, you couldn't have predicted no. that. that was, you had, and so, you know, we're still going through a period, I think, where people are half expecting the downturn is going to come because no one quite can quite explain why there is this upturn in the market. It shouldn't be happening, but it is. And so everyone's sort of thinking, or well not everyone, but a lot of people are thinking, well, okay, this shouldn't be happening, so surely there's going to be a bit of a downturn. If you're going to ask me, and I'm not an expert on this, I'd say there could be, we have to anticipate a slowdown, mm. not a crash. Things seem to be fairly resilient out there, but I think we have to, surely we have to assume that things are going to slow down a bit, and that's good. That's good because working in a volatile market, it's difficult to make sound decisions. Mm. You know, most business people will tell you they prefer to work in a more predictable market. And so I, I think if we do have a slight slowing down, everyone can draw breath, see, see where we are. Recent world events, uh, of course, you know, are going to cast a shadow over things energy prices nobody quite knows how this is going to pan out mm. which is why if you are looking to invest i still think property is a good one yeah uh, to invest in because i go back to what i said property will always have a value yeah yeah absolutely no that's that's, that's mm. it, it's, it'd be interesting to see how it plays out won't it for sure but if i if i were investing now looking to invest i would be looking at it to say okay well look this property i'm buying it isn't going to be because we are on a high point at the moment yeah i'd be working on the basis that it is going to slow down mm. a little bit mm. but over a period of time it's going to increase in value yeah yeah no i think that's very sound sound advice and can we can we talk a little bit about some of the projects you've worked on obviously not disclosing anything confidential at all but you've worked on big projects smaller projects what are some of the what are the what are some of the more interesting projects that stick out in your mind or maybe they were more challenging for you as an architect you know and uh, maybe just talk us through that oh uh, <laughs> i wish you, i wish you'd forewarn me about that it's, it, it's difficult to um I, I can think of, we, we do have a couple of really lovely projects on in London at the moment. Um, you know, one, one of the things which took me a little while to come, to come to terms with is we're going to see projects in London where someone maybe has just paid two and a half million pounds for a, um, a detached house in a suburban part of London. Mm. And, you know, they want extra bedrooms, they want this, they want that. So I'm sort of, initially I was going, right, how can we extend this? How can we, oh no, they said, no, we want to knock it down. And I learned that, that in places like London, bricks and mortar, they doesn't, that isn't where the value is. The value is in the land. Yes. And so they're paying two and a half million pounds for the land, not the bricks and mortar. Mm. In other parts of the country, the bricks and mortar, you know, are valuable, but... I don't even haven't said that, you know, we're finding in, you know, in certain hotspots here in Swansea, you know, it's not unusual for people to pay a million pounds for a house to knock it down. Yeah. And they're, uh, they're then looking to, you know, build a new house on it. So, you know, by the time demolition costs are involved, etc., you know, they're talking about one point, you know, two, five million maybe. Mm. And that, uh, that is not unusual now. Mm, interesting. Yeah. Um, what are some of the... God, um, I don't know, some of the 
some of the big projects, well, big and small projects we'd work. I'd have to give you that some thought and come back to you on that one. Yeah. I'm sorry. This yeah. may well be a follow-up podcast interview, well, Mike. You, you see, never know. <laughs> the highs and lows of, uh, of architecture world. Oh, I rather doubt it's going to go that well. If you want to talk to me again? <laughs> well, hey, listen. This is about being brave and bold and having a growth mm. mindset, Mike. So yes, I think we will be having a follow-up actually. But um, yeah, no, that's absolutely fine. But interesting, you were saying about the land and the value of the land in London and and kind of everything and we've got properties in London as you know and um, mm. I mean it's just crazy for a girl from Manchester trust me I cannot believe that the properties that we have there are worth what they're worth you know well, my, it really my son, messes with your head <laughs> my son works in London and he's um, he's a project manager for a big construction company so he mm. works on building projects uh, large building projects in, in the centre of London and he got married last year and he's buying his first flat now him and his wife and they are paying 25% more for their flat than I've paid for my house here in Swansea and we've got a fairly large house with a, a lot of land in the middle of Gower. Um, I'm just amazed at you know what the prices are in London and, mm. and I'm even more amazed how he can afford to pay for it but he can. <laughs> but uh, you know as he said his, 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 his mortgage payments are le- you know, less than his is um, rent. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Mm. Yeah, no, it is, it's mind-blowing, isn't it? Sometimes, yeah. I remember when I moved to London in, gosh, what year was it, 94, did a typical Northern, I said, I'll go for two years, and then 27 years <laughs> later, it's so going to still down there. But I remember just thinking to myself, I've got to stop comparing prices yeah. between the North and London, otherwise I'm just going to go crazy. Indeed. You know, it's but we're not, we're not here to talk about London. <laughs> no, we're not. We're, we're here not to here. talk about lovely Swansea. Absolutely, here we are. And, and yeah, I mean, South Wales, there's a huge amount going on down here, isn't isn't there in terms of the Gower and Swansea itself and you know this whole area what what have you seen that's changed and you know why is this such a cool place to, to be in the world do you think Mike? Well undoubtedly over the last two years Covid has had a big impact um, as we all know throughout the country yes uh, rural properties are at a premium and prices have gone up as people are realizing that they can work outside of city centres. You don't have to be in the city centre to work. And so there's a lot of people looking to you know, to move out of the city to give themselves, you can buy more for your money and you can have more space around you. Uh, I think that has had a big impact on things over the last you know, two years. Uh, but it's not just that. I suppose technology you know, does allow people to work remotely. Mm. Uh, not, not, of course, not everyone can do that, but more and more people can, mm. and so they've, they're realising that you don't have to be in the city. Um, but of course, some people love living in the city. They're city people, and you take them outside of the city, and they start getting headaches and nosebleeds because <laughs> you know they, they can't. They, uh, they they need those you know services and the coffee shops at their doorstep. So uh, we've got a big cross section of of people who like different things but I think more and more people are realizing now that do you know there's a great quality of life you can have mm. outside of the city yeah and I know that when you know okay Chris your husband was you know f- from Swansea you mm. weren't but you were absolutely blown away oh. by the natural beauty of where you're now living you oh. know, within 10 minutes you're you're on the beach yeah, yeah. and I'm finding increasingly, and you know, I've got three different projects on here in the, the environs of Swansea, housing developments, which have actually been bought by developers and um, construction companies who are London based, but they've come down here and thought, wow, you know, w- what a place, what a place mm. to develop. And uh, they're building housing developments um, in and around Swansea. Um, because they didn't realise that you could actually develop as you know, as competitively uh, as they are doing so, mm. and um, they're, they're just sort of blown away by by the environment. Yeah, and, and that's not just here in Swansea on the beach. I'm talking about you know we've got a site on in Pontedawi mm. where just the natural landscape, the hills and the mountains. The, the developer, he lives in Canary Wharf and he's not used to, and he, so he's, he's, you know, he's 
absolutely amazed and fallen in love with the place. Yeah, well, I mean, honestly, I, because I, I always consider myself a city girl, and I do, mm. I love London, and you know, even though I'm from Manchester, I love Manchester as well. But I have to say, since moving down here, I've been wowed. And, and we've been coming back, you know, I mean, Chris and I have been together 17 years, so I've been coming to Swansea all that time, mm. but just never really appreciated the beauty of, you know, Mumbles and the Gower and, and everything that's going on. So, yeah, watch this space, actually. Mm. But I think for, for us, personally, you know, absolutely loving living here. Um, but also what a great what a great area to invest you know and and yeah. and you know and actually from a business point of view I mean we're focusing on the luxury holiday home um, market as you know but but wow there's so much potential here and, and it's not till you come down that you go okay this is interesting so you know I think whether you're an investor that wants to put you know money in on a, on a, on a sort of you know not necessarily owning the property or you're actually a developer there's, there's a lot to a lot to uh, go for here hmm. and if anyone needs a great great um, architect of course you know, <laughs> Mike Backup is the place to go no seriously though I mean it's um, yeah and, and the local knowledge that you have but it's just it's just absolutely fantastic phenomenal yeah. I agree with you it's, uh, it's an interesting time so before we sort of move on to the, the final bit of the podcast Mark I just wanted to talk about your entrepreneurial journey because we've been talking about the profession and the sort of the kind of architect side of things but we haven't really talked about you and setting up your own practice and, and kind of how that's been the highs and lows of being an entrepreneur and a business owner because it's not always easy is it <laughs> oh no it isn't no it's uh, it's you know, it all started, and when and how it started, it was difficult. Um, I think I kind of come to a little bit of a, a conclusion that you do get two different types of people. You get those who are instinctively, inherently entrepreneurial, mm. and you do get some people who don't have that. They they want to be you know, employed and they want to work for a company. They don't want to own the company, they want to work for it. And that's fine. That's fine because companies need people who want to work for them. Absolutely. You know, if we were all entrepreneurs, well, things wouldn't work. Mm-hmm. And, that's, and, and that's fine. But if you, if you do have this sort of this inner drive to be an entrepreneur, you, and if you're prepared to accept the fact that sometimes you're actually earning less money than the people you're employing, yeah. Yeah, that, that, you know, that often happens. And if money's tight, well, you're the first person to go without salary at the end of the month. You have to, you know, all the employees have to be paid. If, but if you're still prepared to get out of bed the following morning, even though you know you haven't earned any money, because there's something inside you that wants to succeed in, in, in that business, mm. um, well, then opening your own business is the right way for you to go. And so I realized when I, I was working in an architect's office and I was thoroughly enjoying my job and I loved it, but I always knew that I'd sort of wanted at some point to open up my own practice. And so I, I, was, I cut down to part-time work um, and ran my own practice part-time. My employees sort of were fully knowledgeable of what I was doing and that was fine. And then what happened, we had the recession which must have been the early 90s. And of course, as I was part-time, I was one of the first to be made redundant. Uh, And that, I'm not sure if at that time I would have had the boldness to have resigned my part-time position to go full-time. Because it was kind of a bit of a safe option. But I'm ever so glad that did happen. Because it was a nervous time because we just hit the recession, which is why I was made redundant. So now I was now full-time self-employed during recession. Yeah. My wife was running her interior design business, so she was full-time self-employed. And it wasn't a great time to be like that. And, and we still laugh at it this day. You know, we, I didn't have an awful lot of work on. My wife fortunately had you know, a reasonable amount of work on. And so for a short while, I actually ended up becoming my wife's curtain fitter. <laughs> Because, because she said, well, look, I'm, I'm paying a curtain fitter to come and fit, you know, a couple of days a week. Why don't you do it? So I did. I went to work to do that for a while. And then she sacked me after two weeks because I was useless. <laughs> she said, go away, she said. I want my old fitter back. So um, that didn't last too, too long. But we, um, and we had two young children at this time. 
and so we were juggling the children between us. Um, but we, we toughed it out and slowly, you know, things on my side of things got better as work started coming in and it just kind of grew from there really. And then as my practice got slightly larger, I realized that I needed some help in running it. So I had a, an old sort of colleague and a friend uh, who I first met in the, um, in the technical college in Swansea. We were both there together and he was working in an architect's office in Swansea and I had a chat with him one day about joining me and he thought I was taking the mickey, he didn't think I was serious. So we didn't talk about it for another four months. And then I said, did you have any further thoughts about that? And he said, well, I thought you were, didn't think you were being serious. He said, I, I thought you'd had a glass too many wine or something. So <laughs> anyway, so he ended up joining me and that was about 20 years ago now. Wow. And, uh, and it's worked really well for us. I, I understand that going into partnership can be difficult, but we've um, we set down to try and avoid those difficulties. We put a set of rules in place um, but, you know, the, um, you're right, this is the status quo, this is what's happening, and if we change that, we both have to agree to it. Mm. And if one doesn't agree to it, it doesn't happen, and there's no hard feelings. We've both got to be on board or whatever it is we do. And so that's, that's stood us in good stead. Um, but no, it, it, it hasn't always been easy, and I would say that to anyone. You, know, it, 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 you may be lucky and you may hit the ground running, but invariably you won't. Um, it'll start as a crawl, not as a run. Mm. But if you keep crawling, and if, it's what that, if that fire is in your belly, if that's what sort of person you are, you will keep crawling, and then next thing you stand up, and then after that, you get into a little jog, and then you're running. Yeah, there's so much brilliant advice in this. There really is. You know, there's a whole piece around finding your passion, if you like, and, and purpose, because when the times are tough, that will keep you going. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, you know, you were talking about actually, you know, not being not being too arrogant to, to not roll your sleeves up and go and do the because oh, yeah. a lot of yeah. a lot of guys. I mean, I'm not being I mean, funny, but a lot of guys will talk. Oh, I work for my wife, you know, and, and the, <laughs> your, your ego can get in the way, can't it? Sometimes with with people, but when 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 you've got to earn some money, you do what you need to do right yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then what you were saying about about you know your your business partner and actually having those really upfront discussions around the almost the what-if scenarios isn't it you know yeah. so let's make sure you're aligned you've got the same values you're on the same page and, and and it's obviously stood you in good stead and here you are now you know it's great well I think it kind of you know what I've found is is if you're self-employed if you're running your own business um, in the UK, if you want to borrow money from a bank, it, it's quite difficult. You know, they, they treat you with a certain degree of suspicion. Mm. Whereas if you're employed and you can give them three months' paychecks, fine. Whereas I've always viewed it as completely different because if you're the sort of person that's running your own business, if that business fails, you'll always be, you'll open up another one. You'll do something else. Yes. Because that's the sort of person you are. Yeah. If, if you're that sort of person, you'll always have employment because you'll make your own employment mm. you know I always sort of said listen if my architectural practice had failed I don't have a car washing round but it would be with a view to developing that car washing round and expanding it and then employing people to you know to clean all these cars and what have you, you know I'll always earn a living somehow or other whereas you know sometimes the opposite is if you've you know worked in a factory and all your life you've been doing this sort of thing and the factory closes well what do you then do with your life because you you don't have these transferable skills or or personal attributes mm. to do things if you can't find a job elsewhere so I always sort of view someone who is self-employed as a far better bet to lend money to than someone who isn't. Yeah, and, and like you say, tenacity, resilience, being able to bounce back from when things go wrong, you know, it, I mean, that that those life skills and those business skills are, are definitely invaluable. And like you say, it's not the one's better or worse, it's just different, but it's actually, different, yeah. actually entrepreneurial yeah. life, it is tough and it, and it can be lonely at times. And, mm. you know, you, some, you know, very often you might have your own home on the line, you know, financially as well at certain, certain situations, but I think it's, it can be incredibly fulfilling. And, and I think the thing that I really like chatting with you, Mike, is, and, and we sort of talked a bit about this before we, we pressed record was that, 
sometimes when we look at role models or, or people in the business world or whatever and you know there's the, the Richard Branson's of this world and the you know the Elon Musk and stuff and of course it's fascinating to hear their journeys but to a lot of people that seems unattainable you know uh, whereas actually what we've been talking about is you started off when we were chatting earlier around that you had a very nice childhood you grew up in a very normal family but you went to the local comp Mm -hmm. and then you've you know so you're an example of someone that's done really well for themselves the highs the lows but that's actually inspiring to a lot of people that might be thinking oh well you know could I do this well absolutely they could you know you're living proof of that aren't you you know yeah you you, your future will be what you make it and it doesn't have to be the great and the glorious. You, know, you mentioned there Elon Musk uh, and Richard Branson. Well, you know, I, in all honesty, I can't really identify myself with them mm-hmm. because I was never going to, and nor did I want to be what they are. Um, my, my aspirations are always far more modest than that. Uh, but I don't consider myself to be any less successful no. in what I've done. Yeah. And you know, I, I see people, they open up, um, you know, I just walk up through the shop and then I see someone opening up a little shop. And I have a lot of affection for them because I think, right, you know, they're, they're, they're doing what they want to do. They've, they've got this idea about this business they want to open up and they've now taken up a lease on a shop and things. And I think, good for you, mm. well done, you know. And, and in that way, you know, you've, you've been successful. And even if your business perhaps doesn't succeed you've had a success because you've opened your shop mm. and you've given it a go mm. and I think good for you and uh, I really admire people like that yeah absolutely gosh and so much um, I feel quite emotional as you're talking <laughs> then. but no it is true it is true and, and I guess you know I, I say this a lot I genuinely believe that every single person has got greatness within them yeah. what that looks like for, for each individual is totally different and it's it's not about comparing yourself to others but I think it's helpful when you hear about you know people like yourself and your journey and, and what's worked for you and some really good solid advice you know mm. in everything we've discussed here so no it's been been amazing but before we finish, Mac, I've got a few final questions, okay. if that's all right. Um, so can you think of the best piece of advice that you've ever been given? Well, because we've spoken a lot about property, probably the best bit of advice I can think of was given to me by my dad, who said, buy your own house, son. Because, in fact, I didn't buy our own house. My wife and I, we built our first house. but. Uh, that's because I'm an architect and we're all a bit nuts, aren't we? But we were actually, I was still at university because university architecture is a long old course. It's, it's seven years from start to finish. And in my final year, you actually spend your final year working in a practice, but you go to university for block courses and then you sit your professional exam at the end of it. So I was working in an architect's office in Mumbles and we bought a, this little old cottage in Mumbles, a prefab thing, and we... We actually knocked it down ourselves, we burnt it all, and then uh, I designed this little house to go on it. And uh, so we built our first house, but I had to go and get a mortgage. And I suppose to illustrate it, to buy that bit of land, now that was 30 odd years ago, but to buy that bit of land and to build the house, I had a mortgage of £27,500. Now, we laugh at that today, don't we? (laughs) At the time, it was a lot of money. Absolutely. But that probably illustrates that you know, if I still owe that house today and I had a mortgage of £27,500, um, I'd be in a very nice position, wouldn't I? Of course, we've sold that and moved on and bought other houses. So, but I'd probably say that having that asset of my house behind me mm. has been the bedrock to allow me to go on and invest in other properties. So, yeah, buying my first house is probably the best bit of advice I've been given. And another bit of advice, which always sort of comes, well, there's a couple actually, another bit of advice is, well, you should never really borrow more than you can afford to lose. Now, that doesn't mean to say it's not going to hurt if you lose it, and it may be a big setback. Mm. But if you're going to find if you lost it, you're actually going to be living on the streets. Okay. 
Don't do that because you put yourself under too much stress and pressure and you won't enjoy doing what you're doing. That was a good bit of advice. And, um, and then two sayings which were, have always stuck with me and they were, they were, I, it's when I've been in meetings in, and two sayings which I've heard said and they've always stuck with me which well-known sayings. One was the, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. So sometimes be very careful what you get involved in. You may be doing it for the best of reasons, but sometimes it's best just to step back. Mm. Uh, and the other one, because you know, sometimes we're very anxious to try and make sure that we you know, give a good service and our clients are happy, etc. But sometimes you can end up putting too much pressure on the situation. And the expression was, well, what will be done today will be done today, and what can't will be done tomorrow. And that helps you keep an, an equilibrium in your business and professional life. Mm, gosh, I'm feeling very calm now. <laughs> I'm feeling very calm, Mike. <laughs> but no, brilliant, absolutely fantastic. Mm. And can you think of any advice that you've had in the past that maybe you took that didn't work out so well and you were kind of regretted taking it or that you ignored and you were very relieved that you had it? Some advice it? I was given and I didn't uh, take it and I should have taken it. And I know Chris will agree with me in this, your partner. Don't go skiing with Martin Morgan. <laughs> And I didn't take the advice and I regret it to this day. <laughs> I hope he doesn't listen to that. He will listen to it. How did, how did that ski trip work out, Mike? <laughs> it was bonkers, absolutely bonkers, but wonderful. I've, I've, I've never forgotten it to now. I'm a, this, this was typical Martin. He said, I'm bringing a friend with me called Chris. And Chris, I didn't know Chris had never put a set of skis on in his life. And we got off the first lift. And Martin said, oh, I'm going to teach Chris how to ski. And, and that's the first time I'd ever met Chris, of course. And Martin's skiing lesson involved, right, Buzzy, follow me. And that was it. And he shot off down the mountain. And Chris just looked at me. And he did. <laughs> he went after him. So, uh, <laughs> yeah. So, um, but professionally, um, I can't really answer that, really. Um, probably because advice which was given to me, which could have been bad advice maybe subliminally and I, I ignored it and forgotten it yeah so yeah. I can't really I, I am probably given more time I could think of things yeah, yeah but when you put on the spot I, I can't actually think of any any advice which was really bad advice yeah. well that's the point I guess isn't it you know maybe you've got a good filter filter out the stuff that doesn't resonate and focus on the things that well I suppose you, make sense. you've got to have a vision you've got to have a goal of where you want to get to but don't be so blinkered that you don't see the pitfalls or listen to mm. the pitfalls mm. um, take on board the good advice um, don't become um, blind because that you, you, you can be going walking on the wrong road and you're ignoring all the warning signs and guess what you're going to end up in the wrong place. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. Very, again, very sound advice, Mike. There's a lot coming out here. There's lots of golden, <laughs> golden nuggets in this uh, in this episode. And the last question. So this podcast is called Brave, Bold, Brilliant. Uh, what does that mean to you, Mike? Well, when I heard of what Brave, Bold, and Brilliant, I I thought, well, why does Jeanette want to do a podcast with me? You know, because I don't consider myself brave. I don't consider myself bold, and I certainly don't consider myself brilliant. But then in conversation, I thought, yeah, that's because I was thinking of people up there. You think, oh, yeah, they're brave, they're bold. They're, you mm. know, people have done amazing um, things. But as we've learned, no, someone who's just opening up a little shop somewhere is brave, bold, and brilliant. So I suppose what it means is achieving your potential whatever your potential may be achieve it mm. and achieve it in such a way that it makes your life i am as i don't just, <laughs> it's too gushing here but it makes your life better but also the lives of those around you because you know we, do, we, we don't want to be selfish about these things um you know i i get a lot of satisfaction that i'm running the practice but we're employing several people so it actually means a lot to me that we're creating work for other people and I get a lot of you know I get a lot of satisfaction from that probably it's the you know the the deep-rooted socialist ideals which I have mm. um, but you know I think it, it's it's good to do good things for other people
Yeah. And I think we're seeing a lot of that in the world at the moment with Ukraine, how people are, you know, saying, listen, they're prepared to open their homes up. Mm-hmm. You know, we, it, you know, humanity is still there. It, and, uh, and it's good to help other people um, as well as helping yourself. Yeah, oh, I love that. Fantastic. Mm. Yeah, brilliant perspective. So we never know, do we, the influence. This sounds more like thought for the day in Radio 2 now, doesn't it? Yeah. <laughs> hey, Radio 2, here you come, mate. <laughs> no, honestly, it's been fantastic. I've loved our conversation because okay. I think we've had a really interesting chat around the sort of profession and the more, you know, the sort of business side of things, but to learn more about your journey and kind of your approach to life and business as well and entrepreneurialism has been fantastic. So thank you very much, Mike. My pleasure. You are Good. brave, bold and brilliant, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> Don't forget it. Okay. Good. Fabulous. <laughs> I really hope you've enjoyed Brave, Bold, Brilliant. Don't forget to subscribe and share with all your friends. And if you've enjoyed listening, I'd love it if you'd leave me a five-star review.